Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Whether we know it or not, food has the power to bring people and cultures together. My first guest is a TV show personality whose shows include the Travel Channel's Bizarre Foods, Driven by Food, and the Zimmerin List, all dedicated to explore and promoting cultural acceptance, tolerance, and understanding through food. But right now, folks, there are over 5 million restaurant workers unemployed, countless other food, agricultural uh, workers who are out of job, but the workers in restaurant represent 4% of the U.S. GDP, and it's hurting right now. How long will it take for the industry to recover and what's being done about it? We're going to talk about that, and we're talking about the entire food industry, the entire industry. It's huge. Andrew Zimmerman is the host of MSNBC, What's Eating America, and he's going to answer those and a whole bunch more. Andrew, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazel. Thank you. Hey, so, you know, one of the things I had, a, we had a couple over, you know, I, I live between New York and, and South Dakota. South Dakota is my, my home home, as I say it. And then South Dakota, New York's where I have to work all the time. But, you know, we had some, we had some folks over here in South Dakota. You know, we've been practicing social distancing since 1889. So it's not <laughs> like a big deal for us. So we had them come over and we made, I made this dinner, very simple dinner, I made some of my favorite Irish uh, things and I made a little pasta with some stuff, but it, and we drank wine and we just enjoyed it. I, people are coming together over food like never before, in my opinion. Like it was okay before, but now I think people are taking the moment and the time to enjoy it and remember what it's supposed to be like. I, I don't disagree with you. I, I would actually ref, refine that idea a little bit, given the, the human history of interaction with food. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, the great cultural totems of our time, food is one of them, right? You know, math and music, right, being, being the others. You know, if you take away someone's quadratic equation, nothing's going to happen. If you take away their mixtape that their girlfriend gave them in college, you're going to get a punch in the nose. But if you take away, you know, bread and rice, that's the stuff that revolutions are made of. We swim in food culturally. As Americans, we inhale other cultures first through our mouths as food, way before we appreciate the dance or the music. And sadly, very sadly in America, before we appreciate the people. So we do swim in it. We have an extremely profound relationship with food. At no time in human history has a culture ever had as romantic a relationship with food as Americans do uh, in 2020. Over the last couple of decades, it has just grown more and more intense uh, to the point that it's it's how we measure status. It is um, it, it is a it is the the one of the biggest activities that we have done is cooking together. The COVID-19 crisis has revealed the ugly truth, though, about our relationship with food. In that, you know, we we don't produce it fairly. We take advantage still of the people who make it. Um, we promote its unhealthiness, much to our uh, to our regret, both economically um, and in terms of the morbidities that it creates. Um, and there's two or three food Americas that 
exist right now, which is horrific. Um, I had dinner at a friend's house on Saturday. I did, I did the same thing that you did. It was finally time to sort of break the ice. There was a, a couple that I wanted to have dinner, my best friend and his wife. And I went over to their house for dinner and we sat distanced apart. And I've gone on walks with them and bike rides and things like that. So I felt very comfortable doing it. And with everything that's going on in America today, uh, that we've seen in the the the, the rawness of uh, the systemic racism that's been revealed by the horrific uh, shootings that have gone on over the last three or four weeks uh, here in this country, layered on top of the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic, has revealed a really ugly truth about our food systems in America that are also not immune. Uh, to the inequalities. In fact, they've been built on them. So it's a double, it's, it's not only is it a double-edged sword, but we actually have two or three different food systems going on in America. One that you and I get to participate in, and then a very clear other food America where people are not participating in it. And we saw it at first with that rush, you, you remember when the everyone rushed to the supermarket to stock up for oh, yeah. a couple weeks because um, America was closing, and we didn't know what the rule would be with supermarkets or if we have enough had enough food. Despite the fact that people like me were coming on shows like this and saying, "Look, we have billions of pounds of foods in the freezer. You know, America is not going to starve for months and months and months and months." Um, we saw this run at the supermarket and there were reports of people, you know, spending five, $600, you know, and uh, in complete transparency as a one percenter, that's what I did. I went to the supermarket and I stocked up on all the stuff and then went home and turned on the news. And the, the privilege that comes with just being able to do that is, yeah. is incredible when you think about how many millions of Americans couldn't do that right. and what that means for them. Is the and then on top of that, you layer on top of that that whole underlying issue there, but also, I I think the supply chain's breaking down, and oh, from what we've seen, right? In terms for, of, for I sure. mean, you got you got you got people who are slaughtering pigs. They got their they can't get the beef to you know to the marketplace because it's, they're shut down. Here in South Dakota, I mean, we we produce five or excuse me nine percent of the country's bacon is done in one plant and, and COVID swept through that plant. They had to shut it down. Right. Correct. The, 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 the issue is it really comes down to how we treat people. Everything in my experience over the course of my, you know, 30 plus 40 plus years of activism, going back to marching with my parents as a young child um, and being in the food world for so long, um, it always comes down to people. I, I said this on the news and we, we said it in What's Eat America and I said in interviews in March, we need to start sequestering and training food workers in America because it's not the machines that are going to get the disease. It's not the cows that are going to get the disease. Let's just stick with the beef uh, yeah. issue. It's the people who are. These, the, the workers in those plants are, are underpaid they're not kept safe. They work under horrific conditions. And then in a very, very uh, uh, manipulated uh, deal structure, the current administration created a, uh, a DPA uh, executive order, Defense Production Act, um, for the meat industry so they could speed up their production line, even though we didn't need them to, because we have tons of meat in freezers. Um, and despite the fact that 
as you said, that plant produced 9% of the bacon in America. We can do without 9% of bacon in America yeah. for a couple of weeks while they get the, the, the uh, workers. Now you're being revolutionary. Dude, now you're being revolutionary. The idea is uh, we need to do a better job taking care of these people you know, with, who are working yeah. without paid sick leave, without insurance, and are still paying taxes into the American system. But it reveals a very ugly side, just your example of that bacon factory, because whether it's strawberry pickers in in California, whether it's zucchini farmers in Florida, the bacon plant in South Dakota, um, or uh, you know, fishermen off the coast of New England, um, it's that we're all dealing with the same crisis. It is a distribution issue. It's not and a people issue. It's not a food system breaking issue. In other words, the animals are still there. If we took care of our workers, they could keep everyone well. It's just that when you shut off schools and restaurants, you're shutting off the two largest purchasers of food in America. So the food can't go to those places. And a lot of the food that comes out of our plants is in 50-gallon drums and giant, you know, 200-pound packs. So it just has to go to places like restaurants that are doing community resource kitchens, uh, like supermarkets, and there has to be a redistribution of our distribution system. It's not the food system that's breaking. The part of the food system that's breaking is the people part, because we're still not taking care of testing, tracing, and keeping them safe. All right, listen, I wanna get back to this. We'll take a quick break and come right back. C-Suite Radio. All right, we are back and we're live casting right here on LinkedIn and Facebook as we are bringing you all business with Jeffrey Hazel and C-Suite Radio, the world's largest business podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. My guest, Andrew Zimmern, he's the host of MSNBC, What's Eating America. He's the James Beard award-winning personality chef activist, and he's got another show coming out too on Magnolia Network. What's the name of that show? It's called Family Dinner. Um, oh. I, I have a, I have a foot in two worlds. Uh, you know, with my work on MSNBC, I'm able to tell stories, uh, that, that move one needle on one machine. And with Magnolia, you know, for 12 years in Bizarre Foods, we always put a family meal in every single episode of every show that I ever did. The, the point being, I wanted to show people what a family looked like eating in another part of the world because we all look the same. When families gather together and eat, we all look the same. And I saw tremendous value in that. And when Magnolia approached our company, uh, I have a production company called Intuitive Content. They wanted a, a an intuitive content show on Magnolia, not necessarily an Andrew Zimmern show. So I pitched them on uh, the show that I felt would fit that network best, which was called Family Dinner. A uh, host spends time with a family in a given location and shares a meal with them. Very, very simple. But I felt that showing people breaking bread and discussing the ideas of the day would be, yeah. would be something in a family environment is something that we needed to get back to. Um, this was pre-COVID. This is nine months ago. Um, I think it's even more important now. You you started our segment by talking about the importance of people breaking bread together. I'm hoping that the movement uh, towards uh, reclaiming time spent with family over food and cooking and sharing together is one of the silver linings from this pandemic that we we realize how valuable it is to spend time together as a family. So the the network bought the show and they were you know looking for someone like me to host it and then eventually the head of the network said well 
would you do it? And I said, absolutely. And we've shot uh, 10 of the first 20 episodes and we start shooting the back 10 uh, next week. Oh, fantastic. You know, I've always thought <clears throat> there's someone should reinvent the, you know, the mo movie back in the 60s called Guess Who's Coming to, to Dinner. Wouldn't it be great for you to go into the, you know, the most contested areas right now that are having unrest or go to a, even to a Klansman house and go to a, a Muslim house, a Orthodox Jewish house and break bread and just say, hey, I don't know anything about you. But, you know, and I don't like your politics, but let's at least have a meal. And let's talk about it. I it, think that'd it, be cool. I've, I've pitched that show. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And uh, if if you can find a buyer, you and I are in business together because I think it's ex I think it's extremely valuable. In fact, yeah. the old network when I was working for Travel Channel, uh, we were in Israel shooting an episode, and we got an opportunity to go into Jericho, uh, oh, yeah. and to to do a story about the Jericho uh, Women's Couscous Cooperative. Now, this was a group of women who saw all the men go off to fight jihad, many dead. Uh, they had no school. They had no library. And they got together and they said, we're going to make the world's best couscous and we're going to sell it. And we're going to take all that money and we're going to build uh, a clinic and we're going to build a school and we're going to build a library. And the woman who started it, started it was the uh, current wife. I believe she was the third uh, of one of the most notorious uh, terrorists in the world. Now, this gentleman was living in a house in Jericho on a hill that he really couldn't leave because there were Israeli tanks on the Israeli-occupied side trained on his house. He was sort of under permanent house arrest there uh, because of his location. Um, and he had uh, been the gentleman who wrote um, all of the uh, treatises and policies for the for the PLO back in the seventies, the uh, I, I believe it was uh, MI six that had uh, tried to go. No, no, no. Sorry, the Mossad had gone after him with a book bomb, and his face is streaked with gunpowder from him. He didn't die. The book bomb malfunctioned, and uh, we went to visit him in his house. He invited us for juice because we had been in his wife's. Uh, Couscous factory. And we went in there, we had a long talk with them, and the network wouldn't let us air it. Still one of the, the best 15 minutes of TV I ever made. And I thought to myself, you know, if I can talk to this guy right. about his views as a, as a, as a Jewish American, what a, what a fantastic show idea. Uh, yeah. But yeah, they and over juice, over juice, over, over homemade apricot juice in his home. It was surreal. He was pointing out to me all the different on his wall of fame were pictures of him with, you know, all these famous terrorists and horrific people. And at one point, I actually said to him, I said, my hope is that someday, uh, you know, you're, he had his grandchild was playing on the ground, roughly the age of my son at the time. I said, I hope that your grandchild and my son will someday be able to break bread together and have juice. And he looked at me smiling, sipping his juice and said, someday I hope my granddaughter bathes in the blood of your son and the other children. And I was just, I mean, I was so horrified and he said it so straightforwardly, but he really believed it because his sense of time is so much different. It doesn't matter how much time he took. He is so committed to the cause. And I didn't run away from that statement. I, I actually sort of talked to him about it. And it was a, uh, you know, I, 
I actually called it out as being, you know, a violent and foolish idea that in fact, if you look at history, great change is only made when we come together. It's not when we pursue violent ends uh, with, with yeah, I mean, just look at the uh, Crusades. Uh, right. These things do not work out well for anyone. So um, I do think that would be a great show. Sidebar. Yeah, no, I think so too. And let me ask you a question. You know, going back to your your start in Bizarre Foods, is there something you wouldn't eat, by the way? Uh, I'm not big on walnuts. I'm not big on... Walnuts? Uh, yeah, I don't walnuts? like them that much. I'm, I'm, I'm really against co- raw cookie dough which some people love. I just hate the taste of raw flour. So yeah, I'm not really into the raw cookie dough thing. But the other stuff's okay. Everything else, everything else someone's grandmother made. It's, yeah. absolutely, it's absolutely delicious. Yeah. I trust grandmothers. Yeah, that's a, that's a good thing. Did, how did you get started in this business, Andrew? I mean, for, I, I'm just amazed, by the way, I've watched your show, big, huge fan, but I'm even more amazed by the conversation and how deep and rich it is. And that, that's that. Not that it surprises me. It's just it's like, wow, this is a, you're the kind of guy that I want to have. I want to go have a scotch with and I want to go sit down and have a nice meal with. And we talk talk about the world's problems and what can we do to fix it individually and collectively. I, I started doing TV when I moved out here to Minneapolis. Uh, I came out here 28 years ago to get sober, stayed sober, stayed living here opened restaurants, started going on local TV, and then as a guest on national TV, and the food boom was starting uh, in America. And the next thing, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to be a regular on some uh, national shows, typical Mary Ellen and Rebecca's Garden, two nationally syndicated shows, uh, one out of ABC, one out of a fledgling network called HGTV, And I just kept pitching tape, pitching tape, pitching tape. And eventually, and this is, I guess, going back 15 years, uh, a uh, a gentleman named Pat Young, who was running Travel Channel, had just hired a guy named Anthony Bourdain to, uh, Mm -hmm. to, he took Cook's tour from Food Network, brought it over for a year, and then uh, started uh, Parts Unknown. And uh, I joined, and it was, you know, I pitched this idea of exploring other cultures through food, which he loved. The Trojan horse that I baked in there was, the show on one hand, for some people, is an entertainment show about a fat white guy that goes around the world and eats bugs. The real show is about preaching patience, tolerance, and understanding to people that otherwise were only describing us by our differences and not by our commonalities. And I really felt that it was an important show to make. If, If it, every TV show that I made, even you know, from Zimmerman List to Family Dinner, all of them, I need to be able to stand behind it as something that's going to change the world and make it better because of its existence. If it's not going to make the world a better place because of its existence, something beyond entertainment, I simply don't do it. It was the genesis for our MSNBC show. I felt that people were ready for serious news shows about food uh, shot in a docu-reality style uh, that was popular on lifestyle networks. And I was right. It's been very successful and hopefully they're going to sign us up to a second season soon. Well, it's a pleasure. It's great to have you on the show. We got to have you back again, because this is going to be a lot more fun when we, we can start moving the needle even more. That's a, that's absolutely right. I'm happy to come anytime and thank you for all that you do. Well, thank you. Thanks for being, Oh, Hey, wait, one last question. I have to ask you this. All right. I went to Ireland with my family. Now, my stepbrothers-in-law 
saw you eat a black lobster. We spent two weeks it looking was, for was, a, a black lobster. Blue. It's a dark blue lobster that is commonly found in Europe. Uh, it's very popular uh, off the coast of some of the northern European countries, and they have a tremendous fishery for blue lobsters off the coast of Ireland. They are almost identical genetically to Omaris americanus, which is the typical Maine lobster that right. we think of in this country. Uh, but yeah, it's got a beautiful uh, blue shell. It's a stunningly gorgeous uh, animal. They're absolutely spectacular. Ireland, you know, Ireland it suffers from uh, uh, people playing into the food myth that everything there is boiled, bland, and boring. It's one Which of is the most not fantastic true. food countries absolutely. in the world. And the, you know, what we think of here in America is, you know, we've got to get back to farm and table, farm to table is so prevalent in Ireland, it almost defines the food there. And traveling and eating through that country is an absolute delight. It is, and now you've solved the family mystery. I even have a painted black lobster that we've, we've, we, we rotate around the family because we're looking for this elusive black, and we kept finding the blue lobster, but no black. You've solved the message. Now I can, I can talk to my family again. It's great, it's awesome. I love it. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Appreciate sir. it, brother. Thank you Bye -bye. for joining us. Take care. At the end of every show, I like to talk about what I learned. But up next, we're going to have Peter Shankman of Shankminds. He is the founder of Harrow, helped a reporter out, sold it 10 years ago uh, for millions and millions of dollars. And he's going to be up next. But before that, I like to talk about what I learned from Andrew. And I'll tell you what I learned. It's not the food problem. We don't have a problem growing food, making food, getting, you know, getting the food, you know, I mean, you know, getting it up out of the ground or, or uh, growing it from little tiny babies or from eggs or whatever. We got a problem with uh, being able to deliver it, you know, in the food chain and taking care of the individual people. And that's the real, that's the real problem. What are we doing to take care of the people in that food chain? Uh, not the animals, the people. Because that's the ones that we got to protect. Those that are working in these plants in South Dakota, or whether the fishermen in New England, as he mentioned, or whether they're, you know, strawberry pickers down in California or wherever it might be, or zucchini. I think he said zucchini. I didn't know zucchini farmers in Florida. I didn't know that. Zucchini. In South Dakota, you got zucchini season. Look out. You leave your car unlocked, you're going to get a whole car full of zucchini in uh, around about July, August. Look out. All right. But anyway, that's what I learned today. And I think it was great. Although I, I was very upset with what he said about bacon. So we, we could get by without bacon. That's not true. That, that's not true. All right. That's what I learned right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazler. I've known my next guest today for a long time and we've done TV together and we always have great conversation. In fact, we're neighbors. He's a true entrepreneur and among his many success stories is being the founder of Help a Reporter Out, also known as Harrow, H-A-R-O. Peter Shankman runs Shankminds Breakthrough, a private online entrepreneur community with hundreds of members around the world. He's also a best-selling author, podcaster, and good friend. Peter, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazel. Be here, buddy. Nice to see you again. Good. You don't like, I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking as you're, you're having to listen to me talk about you, one, but two, you, you have a, you, you know, you have a short attention span. I was, yeah, I was doing four other things in my head while you were introducing me. So it's all good. <laughs> I know that. I know. Talk about your podcast real quick, because you're really helping a lot of people and it's just really kind of nice. So it's funny. Last night, um, I had a Zoom call as the 30th high school reunion for, for when I graduated high school, uh, right up the street in Manhattan. And um, I had a hundred people on and I realized that, you know, 
I finally got to the point in my life where, where all the stupid shit I did in high school that got me in trouble is actually benefiting me now. Um, yeah. you know, speaking at a turn, uh, um, cracking jokes, all that stuff is, is actually, is actually a win. And what I realized is that it was all my ADHD. Uh, but when I was in the eighties, when I was in high school, ADHD didn't exist. What existed was sit down, you'd drop in the class disease. And, um, yeah. finally, you know, I, I realized several years ago that I could turn that into a, into a positive and into a trade. So I launched a podcast called faster than normal, which focuses on the gifts of ADHD, uh, also focuses on the, um, uh, any sort of neurodiversity. So ADHD, autism spectrum, executive function disorder, dyslexia, uh, anything along those lines. And, and what I realized there are a lot of people out there who have varying degrees of neurodiversity. And as long as you learn how to use it to your advantage, uh, it can be a true advantage. You know, if, if you drove a Honda all your life and then someone gave you a Lamborghini, if you try to drive the Lamborghini the same way you drove a Honda, you know, you'd crash into a tree. But uh, once you learn how to drive that faster brain, you can really do a lot with it. So we've had CEOs of Keith, Keith Crouch from DocuSign. We have Dave Needleman of JetBlue. Um, uh, the band Shinedown, Tony Robbins, Seth Godin, all these people on the podcast who, who identify as different, who identify as, as, as neurodiverse or ADHD. And, and it's really uh, awesome. We had about two, over 200 episodes plus a New York Times bestselling book by the same name. And um, it's nice. It just, it's, it's, it's helping to change the, the conversation around neurodiversity and it's, it's long overdue. You know, I like that. I've never heard uh, neurodiverse, you know, cause I would be on that spectrum as well uh, no in a different way. It. Yeah. And, you know, I, I even have, I even call it a, a verbal dyslexia because I, I can't get the words out sometimes, even though I can see them and so forth, I just can't get them out. And then sometimes I have difficulty reading, which is kind of weird. Um, but nonetheless, but you know, I've coped with it. You learn to cope with it, don't you? I mean, well, and, you, and I channel it. for me, coping with it was what I did as a kid growing up. Now that yeah. I'm an adult, I, I use it, you know, I thrive because of it. I don't just survive with it. Yeah. I thrive because yeah. of it. you know that, the, the faster brain is what allows me to uh, come up with an idea on an airplane and launch it by the time we land or, or write an entire book on a 14-hour flight, things like that. Yeah, I call it channeling. Yeah, coping is not the right word. Channeling is a better, I think, a better word. At least, at least that's what it makes me feel better about it because yep. I, uh, I do know I'm different, and I know that you're different. No and, question about and, it. and you have a different, a different place on that spectrum than I do. We don't act the same way, but... Uh, although you mentioned some of those names, I know many of those names are good friends of mine. Yep. In fact, I recommended them for your show because I just know they're on that spectrum too. Yeah, I'd love it. How did you come up with the idea for Harl? Help a reporter out. So when you're ADHD, you talk to everyone and you uh, basically spend your entire life talking. And for me, um, a lot of, uh, because a lot of my time is on a plane, if you're sitting next to me in a plane, unless you fake your own death, I'm gonna know everything about you by the time we land. And um, you know, only two people have done that. But I would, uh, I, I just have this ridiculously large Rolodex from that. I talk to everyone, and over time, um, you know, I, I, running a PR firm is my first job. I report, I talk to reporters, and they call me up. Peter, I'm doing a story on X, Y, Z. Who do you know? Oh yeah. yeah, call this guy. I met him a couple of years ago. Call that guy. And that just, that got bigger and bigger. And uh, reporters started calling me on a regular basis to the point where I, I couldn't, I was doing that all day. I was matching people. I'm like, gotta be an easier way to do this. And um, I, I sketched out the idea. I remember I was flying from LA to New York um, and I connected in Houston. And I sketched out the idea on the flight from LA to Houston, landed in Houston, went to the club, the president's club at the time, and called a guy I knew who built websites. I gave him the general idea. I'm like, can you build me a one page site that does this? He goes, yeah, no problem. Landed, 
four hours later in New York from Houston, had a working website. And, and by the next day it was live. And um, that became Help Reporter Out. And, and three years later it was acquired by, uh, by Cision. It was a, it was a, and and from, and for millions of dollars, which is awesome. And it was a a great way, you know, that, that PR business of it changed so much. And you're, what you're talking about is really the realities of a digital world. Cause I used to be in the PR business too, being a member of public relations society of America, started out that ran my PR firm for years, bought and sold a few of them over the years as well. But it really, it, I think the digital business changed PR in a way that's just been just radical, radical. I mean, what have you seen in that side of it? Well, no question about it. I mean, for me, it was really about, um, you know, journalists are doing 10 times more with five times less. And so the, the, the concept of giving them a good story really shifted into the concept of helping them get their job done. And if you can help them get their job done, life became, life becomes a lot easier, right? Mm-hmm. You can get, you can, if you can provide them with the access they need or with the info they need, they're going to rely on you and they're going to call you. And that really was what Help Reporter did and still does. I mean, it still works, still free service. Um, I just did it at scale. Yeah. And when, when, now when you sell a business like that to somebody else, I mean, what, and you start seeing them change it, do different things, what do you think about? What goes through your head when they do that? You know, there's always a part of me that is a, I'd love to buy it back. I mean, I think that, I think it'd be so much fun to buy it back and just take it over again. But at the end of the day, you can't go home again. Right. And I'm doing a lot of new things and I'm, I'm very fortunate that I get to do all these new things. So I'm happy where we are. You know, I think it was a great time to sell it. I did very, very well. Um, I was fine with it, you know, and, and there'll always be that twin. I mean, it was 10 years ago last week that I sold it. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, there'll always be that twins that wants to go back and do it again or whatever. But I think I did the right thing when I did it and, you know, on to, on to greater things. Yeah, you know, like you said, you know, it's like that first girlfriend, second girlfriend, third girlfriend. You can never go back. Never go back. Sure. The love's still not there. It's different kind of love, different thing. Hey, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back after this message. C-Suite Radio. Hey, we are back and we're live on LinkedIn and Facebook because we're doing a live cast. You're watching us tape our all business with Jeff Bezos at the world on C-Suite Radio, the world's largest business podcast network. And with me today is Peter Shankman, futurist in residence, Epic Marketing Consultants Corporation. I mean, he he runs Shank Minds. I love it. When he came out with it, I, thought, I called him right away and said, that's freaking unbelievable. I, I, I hopefully you remember that. I, I said that I just thought that was such a great play on, on the brand, on you, and then being able to sh- sell shank men, you know, and then have a mastermind of, you know, of sorts. And then I, it was cool. It's been just doing, doing pretty well, isn't it, Peter? It is. It is. I'm having a lot of fun with it. A couple hundred people um, in the group. Uh, we, we are virtual. We meet online a couple of times a week. And then um, I do, I do live events, which of course now, because when you walk outside the air can kill you have, I've also become virtual events. So we're doing those online as well, but um, it's good stuff. It's a lot of fun. Having a good time with it. It's at shankminds.com. I saw you say you were about to announce some somebody big, a speaker. Did you? Yeah, we're doing yet? a uh, we're doing a virtual conference um, on the 25th next Thursday, and we got uh, Jeremiah Oyang as the opening. Keynote. Oh, Jeremiah! And wow. we got Olivia Damato as or Olivia Amato as the closing keynote. She's one of the uh, she's the senior cyclist uh, instructor at Peloton, and so uh-huh. uh, and a former Wilhelmina model, I might add. So she's coming on as our closing keynote, and then we got uh, Sri Sarvasian, um uh, 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 Richie Glassberg, uh, Greg Hoffman, got a bunch of, uh, breakout sessions. We have a fun day. 
I know you're a big cyclist. You, my daughter and you talk from time to time. Uh, what are you doing now that you can't get out or are you getting out? I'm uh, getting out, but I'm getting out ridiculously early. I mean, that that's nothing new to me. I'm always out early. Um, yeah. You know, but I'm, I'm biking now. When I go outside to bike, I'm biking at like 4 a.m. Um, yeah. And I'm doing a lot more uh, on the Peloton. I have the Peloton bike and the treadmill. So, you know, I'm, I'm training for Ironman Kona. Um, yeah. Uh, which is, which I was supposed to be doing in October. They've moved it to February and I am, um, I'm training for, I'm, 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 it's a full Ironman. It's a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride and a full marathon all within 17 hours. And I am doing it essentially in Kona, essentially on an active volcano, but I'm doing it for, um, leukemia lymphoma society. Yeah. And so, um, what that means is that Jeffrey, it means you gotta donate some money because they okay. are a great, I'm in. a great, a great, wonderful charity. Um, yep. you know, cancer doesn't take a break, uh, just cause of COVID-19. So shankman.com slash Ironman. Yep. No, I and, lost uh, my, uh, I lost my mother to leukemia. So you can you count on that. Yep. You got it. Uh, and Kona, have you done that race before? I've never done Kona. I've done two other Ironman and I obviously yeah. didn't learn from that. So I'm doing a third one. And, um, <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be amazing. I'm going to die. It's going to be great. I'm excited. Kona is a tough one. You know, my partner's a triathlete and Ironman did Kona hit the wall. I mean, I'm yep. telling you, it's, it's a tough when you and you step off the plane and you drive go left or when you go left out of that airport it looks like the surface of the freaking moon oh yeah yeah i'm doing yeah. It, i'm doing a, uh, an ironman an ironman triathlon on a on a, uh, on a active volcano that's you know not yeah. not a not a great idea I mean, there are parts, people, that if you go in Kona, the parts that you look around, you're standing there, and you can't see grass. You can't see anything. It's just nothing but lava. Um, yep. Wow, just crazy. So what, how else do you see how – how else do you see marketing change right now with all the stuff that's going on with COVID? I think that one of the, one of the things that's happening is we're starting to see companies um, – you know, it's funny. I imagine if you're a marketer right now, you know, what the hell do you do for your June email? You must be scared shitless because, you know, you got three emails you want to send. Which one do you send out? Do you send out the Black Lives Matter email? Do you send out the, oh. the Pride email? Do you send out the COVID email? Oh, my God, I don't know what to do. You know, it's, yeah. it's, I think that that what we're seeing is for the first time, we're seeing that companies simply making a statement saying we support X is no longer good enough. Right. right. And we're finally starting to see we support X and here's how we're backing that up with action. And that's nice because yeah. that that's long overdue. Yeah. Well, I'm, the emails that say we're with you, we, right. we understand. I don't that's need to bullshit. be with you. No, that's I bullshit. Yeah. I know that I know if, if one more brand comes out and says these are our, our, uh, uh, trying I know it's unprecedented. Yeah. Leave me alone. Yeah. These are these are trying times. No shit, Sherlock. I mean, look on look on TV. I mean, we got the worst economic downturn in forever. We've got COVID nineteen, which you know some people don't even believe it exists, which is just freaking nuts. But, and then but you got I injected the most- my bleach this morning, so I'm good. <laughs> good. You're yeah. I know you're following Trump. All good. Yeah. <laughs> I I love that. I love that the um. I love that. Uh, he must be having a, a, a heart attack today because the uh, the Supreme Court came out and um, and secured workplace uh, workplace equality for uh, gay and lesbian transgender. So I am just I, I love he must be rage. Tw- I haven't I don't follow him. He must be rage tweeting up a storm him and his tiny little hands today. So that's exciting. Well, I think I saw you post something when he was in the bunker. You posted a big, someone holding a Big Mac outside yeah, the bunker. Yeah, trying to lure him out of the bunker, yeah. <laughs> bunker, that was, I thought, was one, one of the classics. You know funny? The, classics. the interesting thing, I was talking about this with my seven-year-old daughter. Um, we were talking about respect. And, and I told her that, because we were talking about presidents and everything like that, and she goes, 
tell who was the president before Trump. And I told her about Obama. And she said, who was before Obama? And I told her about Bush. And I said, and, and she goes, did you like every single one? I said, actually, I said, I didn't like some of them. I didn't like, so I really liked Obama. Right. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't like Bush. I said, but I always respected him because I right. always respected that you respect the office of the president until now. And that led into a whole discussion about how you have to earn respect and you can't just get it. So if nothing else, he's a wonderful teachable moment. Yeah. Well, I think we, we grant respect, we grant sincerity to everyone. And then your reliability or competency proves whether or not we continue to do that. I mean, it is, he is, he's going to go down in history as the world's worst teachable moment. It's amazing. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, even with Bush, I don't remember it being that bad when I went overseas. I actually have a shirt when I fly um, this is one of my shirts. This is, this is, uh, 86, 2020. But, yeah. um, my other one, the one that I wear when I travel actually says, sorry about our president. And then it says the same thing in 16 different languages. Um, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Now today's world, I tell you what, when you traveled, um, a, a few years ago, four years ago, and it was with Obama's president, they actually gave us a great deal of respect. It was amazing. That, you know, as opposed to Bush the, before that, the the respect. And you and I travel, one, you and I travel a lot. We are all over the country. I know you give away miles. You do all kinds of things. I know you're global and united because you, we both are. In fact, we should tell everybody, we were on the very first flight yeah. that uh, the 787 Dreamliner together. You remember that? That was an awesome, awesome day. That was a lot of fun. We got that. I still have the ribbon. I still yeah, have I the you ribbon. You picked it up off the floor and just stole it. You flat out stole yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, the, they did a ribbon cutting, folks, and they had this beautiful banner that they they did. And I thought it was they, they cut it and they let it on the floor. And I thought, what the heck? I picked it up. So the first seven, eight, seven. I'll probably give it back to United for their um, for the, maybe their museum someday. So what do you, what do you what are the elements that you think a great marketing strategy needs to have right now? I think you know no one ever went broke knowing when to shut the hell up. Right. That's, I think, yeah. the first thing I'd say is that you don't necessarily have to um, keep your, you don't necessarily have to keep your mouth open all the time. There's nothing wrong with being quiet every once in a while. Um, on the flip side, I think that um, we're seeing a lot more humanism now. Um, yeah. We're seeing the companies are willing to show their human side and, 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 and not just be a robot and get involved in conversations they otherwise would have stayed out from. And so I think that if you have the ability to uh, say something intelligent, say something worthwhile, um, you can do that well. Mm -hmm. Well, like you said before, too, I think everyone's becoming a, gr a great deal more sophisticated in, you know, not just like believing everything that comes over the transom or taking it, meaning the advertising, the marketing. And like right now, like for instance, um, you know, companies that are taking state statements about Black Lives Matter, first they need to say it. That's one. Second, they have to say, what are they going to do about it? Right. Right. I mean, there's got to be some action. I mean, we recently released one ourselves and I put out there, we're going to publish diversity numbers. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And I, I think a lot of companies have missed that or are going to miss that, but they're going to get called out on it. Don't you? I agree. I think that, you know, one of the interesting things is that, again, there are right and wrong ways to do it. Um, you know, I love the fact that, like, for instance, I love that NASCAR is no longer uh, going to allow the Confederate flag to fly on, on, their, on their races. And then two funny things happened. The first one was that within 24 hours, one of the cars uh, in a race was decorated with Black Lives Matter, which I thought was awesome. And then 
the other funny thing that happened was a, uh, a, a driver said he's no longer going to drive, a race car driver is no longer going to drive for uh, NASCAR if they, if they won't respect his freedoms, right? They won't let him use that flag. And um, NASCAR's tweet back was something like, we literally had to Google who you were, right? You had 22, you had tw- you've raced 22 times. You've never even come in the top five in any of those races. We literally had to Google who you were. And I thought, that's br- think about how, how awesome that is for them to, to not only say what they said, but then double down on it and call that guy out. So I think that right. if nothing else, we're seeing a, some companies are growing a pair. And it's nice to see. Yeah. They're growing a pair on the right side of history, which is a nice thing to see. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's a nice thing to see. Hey, speaking of nice things to see, let me take a quick break. I'll come right back. C-Suite Radio. Hey, we're live and live casting. And thanks for uh, listening in. We appreciate it. We're at All Business with Jeffrey Hazel right here on C-Suite Radio. And of course, we're live casting on LinkedIn and Facebook as we bring you you know, Peter Shankman of Shank Minds, and Peter is the former founder of Harrow, Help a Reporter Out, and of course, now a futurist in resident. He's an Iron Man. He's, he's, a, he's a renaissance kind of guy, and a, and a good dad, too. That's one of the things, Peter, I always like, you. I, I read your stuff privately because we're friends, you know, and, and by the way, you just said she was seven. I remember when she was born, so it's like, oh my gosh, it, it goes quick, doesn't it? Don't get me started. I mean, I, and the other interesting thing that I'll tell you, homeschooling's taught me something interesting and homeschooling has taught me that every single teacher she's had in her life, in her short life so far, they've all lied to me. She is not a pleasure to have in class. <laughs> well, maybe it's the teacher, uh, dude. <laughs> Seriously, I Who think you got to look in the mirror. Transferred to another class. You got to work on that. <laughs> yeah, that's just because they, they, hey, listen, kids know how to push your buttons. Your own kids. Now, when they get to be grandkids, oh, they're, oh, they're adorable. They're adorable, man. About it. That's, what you, that's what your mom and dad say, too, by the way. So, <laughs> hey, you know, can, I just talked to you about a private moment, but do you consider anything private anymore versus what's public and what you say in private versus public. I mean, people still try to have those conversations. I go like, Hey, get over that. There's not much. Uh, there's yeah. not much of uh, private versus public anymore, but I will say that one of the things I've stopped doing is I no longer share photos uh, of my daughter publicly. Um, yeah. I totally. don't, there are so many fake Instagram, Peter Shankman accounts uh, yeah. that I have to go after and kill uh, literally weekly. Right. And, and they're using photos of my daughter yep. and of me, you know, and, 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 and the part that drives me insane is, is the part they're saying, uh, they're, they're, they're using all my photos and then they're, they're following my friends and then they're reaching out to my friends and saying, my daughter's very ill. I she's in the hospital. Uh, I need some money to, to, to save her life. Right. And it, you know, it would be, it would be almost funny if it wasn't so disgusting. And so I'm constantly, um, you know, dropping the, reporting these things to them. And then they do get killed. It takes a couple of days, but then they do, the, the accounts do get killed. But, you know, at some point when I have nothing to do and we can fly again and there's no more virus destroying the world, I'm going to fly to Africa because I know, I know where the accounts are coming from. I know where they're, in- They're, they're all out of Nigeria. They're mostly out of Nigeria, right? Yep. I'm going to fly there. And I'm just going to beat the shit out of someone. Just, just. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I feel your pain because I've, I've talked about this because I have dating sites everywhere. I'm, I'm both heterosexual and, yep. and I'm on everything, male, female, doesn't make a difference. I'm even on J-Date, you know, and I'm not even Jewish, you know, so and they take my profile. And of course, they cheat women out of money. And that's yep. what they do. And we should do something. By the way, 
we need to stay. One of the things we, we can do out of this and a good thing to come out of this conversation, Peter, is maybe get a few of us together and talk about what we can do to the dating sites because that's where the real problems are. And they don't take the profiles down, even when we report that they're fake and they're not of me. They use somebody else's names, but they're using my photographs. Using our photos, yeah. Yeah, with my with my wife and said she died or yep. said she's my sister and then with my grandkids and say what a great grandfather I am or what a great father I am because sometimes they, they put it off as that I'm younger, which is kind of nice. But nonetheless, it, you know, I, it's just bad news. These guys are... There's there's scuzz there's scumballs. There's there's yeah, there's unbelievable. Yeah. All right. What's your favorite dad joke? Oh god, what was the one I heard today? Um, you know, I headed out to the smoke shop to discover that since they they it's been closed. They replaced it with a tailor, you know, clothes but no cigar. Uh, <laughs> all right. That's bad <laughs> enough. We'll leave it with that. I appreciate it, Peter. Good to see you. Hey, don't forget everybody, check out Peter Shankman, Shankminds.com shankminds.com you're gonna love it he's a great guy he does some good work and he's nuts he's crazy but i love him and uh even when he's dressed up like a zombie occasionally i love that i remember take the- care jeff hey at the end of every show i like to talk about what i learned i tell you you know you can't i've said this before you can't judge a book by its cover but you can sure tell the flavor of the book just by looking at him or listening to him or hearing him and then we talked about a little bit about adhd and i i you know, a lot of times you'll say, hey, that person's got ADHD or they got this or got that. Really, I like that word. I never heard it before, neurodiversity. It's a spectrum. And you can fit anywhere on that neurodiversity spectrum, myself included, because I wouldn't necessarily call myself ADHD. I've got some tendencies for that. So that was a new word. I'm going to go look it up and I'm going to go study it a lot more. That was something I learned. So what did you learn? Uh, drop me a line. Let me know. You can get a hold of me at Jeff at csuitenetwork.com or, or post something up on social. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, of course, love for you to be able to tell other people about us right here. Uh, this is All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett on C-Suite Radio. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.